Welcome to Ethics Now, conversations about ethics. The ethical problems are that we are denying children for no fault of their own and through nothing that they can control, we're denying them the ability to both be more successful but also to contribute. We're asking the wrong questions. We're asking how much it costs and we can't do that. Not if we're serious about preserving the next generation's ability to be good citizens and to be successful. I'm Kathleen Sabo, and in this episode, we're going to talk about the ethics of education and the care of children in America. I'm joined by Dr. Will Barnes and attorney Paul Biederman. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Very good to be here. Thanks, Kathleen. So when you hear the phrase, the ethics of education, what comes to mind for each of you? Morning, Kathleen. As someone who works in academic philosophy and education, the question the ethics of education really cuts to the heart of the discipline. From Plato to Dewey, this has been one of the most important concerns in the discipline because it cuts to some of our deepest questions. Essentially, I think the moral intuitions is that we should be educating children to prepare them to lead the best possible life. And that, of course, leads into the profoundly deep questions about, well, what is a good human life? And there are various traditions that we can see in the history of Western thought. The earliest traditions, the Buddhist traditions, the Greek traditions, the Confucian traditions, all the way up to the Christian traditions, view education and the ethics of education centered around the idea of virtue, that living virtuously is the best life we can live. And it's our obligation, therefore, to educate children to be able to live virtuously. Then you had a development in the emergence of what we call modernity, where creating citizens equipped to live in a democratic liberal society became the overarching ethic of education. And more recently, we live in a time where neoliberalism and economic forces have pushed the priority more towards some kind of economic viability, as well as making some kind of societal contribution. So these are the sort of rough frameworks that a philosopher such as myself thinks of when we're beginning to talk about the ethics of education. Thank you, Will. And Paul, following up on that, what do you think of when you hear the phrase, the ethics of education? Well, I think very much of the, the fact that children are our future and that we are responsible for ensuring that our children are prepared to carry forward, deal with the messes we're making for one thing, but also to carry forward the advancement, the success, the health of the civilization that we have. And I think that's somewhat in question now. I think there's, there's a lot of problems and a lot of challenges to ensuring that our children are, in fact, given that opportunity to provide the services they need to provide for themselves and for their own lives in the future, as well as for our society as a whole. Well, Paul, do you think we're doing right by our children ethically with regard to education? Well, I think there's areas of strength and areas of weakness. You know, the fact that everybody has supposedly the access to a public free education, of course, is a, an achievement that goes back for quite a while in our country. And that's a very important one. On the other hand, there are weaknesses in that system. Some are excellent. I'm the product of totally public education through college. And it was a, a very successful one I got in New York. But that's not universally true. And I think we have to look at the excellent schools and the excellent programs to see what we're providing well and try to replicate that and improve on it in other areas too. So I don't think we're there yet. 
you know, we put out a question to the public regarding whether we had an ethical duty to educate children equally. And what came back from a listener was the short answer, yes, we do have an obligation. And then he went on to say he's lived in New Mexico for five years and traveled all over the state, and he's never seen such a disparity of education opportunities anywhere else. One judge has also found that to be very prevalent. We had the decision by Judge Sarah Singleton, who unfortunately died within the year after that decision was issued, a good friend of mine and an excellent judge, who had identified a number of areas in which our education was failing to deliver to different groups of children in New Mexico, whether they be English language learners or minority groups, which we have a majority of in our state, and kids with special needs. They were all not getting adequate educational services. The legislature heard that the case wasn't appealed by our current governor, and the the state has gone to some great lengths to try to remedy the situation. That's still a work in progress, but I have to say the effort's being made. And that's the Yazzie decision in case anybody wants to go out and look that up. Uh, Will, stepping back a little bit from the specifics of New Mexico, are we doing right by our children ethically with regard to education? It's a deep question. I think Paul's balanced response is the most appropriate and reasonable. There are obviously situations where we are, and there are obviously climates and situations where we are not. And to take a further step back as well, to answer the question, we have to decide or reach some kind of consensus about what the purpose of education is to even answer the question if we are meeting our ethical obligations concerning education. And I think one of the most fundamental and helpful concepts to adjudicate in these kind of questions is the rights-based discourse, the idea that education is some kind of human right. But that by itself, I think, is a popular intuition, but the specifics perhaps are not so clear. One way to articulate this idea is that education provides us as individuals with the ability to self-determine, to gain the critical thinking capacity, the imaginative capacity, the distance from the status quo, to develop the capacity to decide who we want to be and how we want to live. And if this is the primary goal of education, to provide people with autonomy and self-determination, then educational institutions are responsible for providing that. And one question that I just wanted to raise in relation to this idea of are we doing right by children ethically is if this is a human right, then it's an equal right. Is this right being extended equally? And I think one important question we can ask ourselves is that if children are being held back due to societal inequalities and injustices, then the right to autonomous self-determination provided by education is being violated. And our listener who questions the conditions of equality in New Mexico, I think this is the point we're talking about. Before we even get into the classroom, we're talking about access to the goods that education provides. So from the rights-based perspective, if the private state school divide, if general inequities are resulting that in the situation where the goods of education are unequally distributed, I think we have to answer the question, we are not doing right by children ethically. The same question from virtue perspectives would argue, are our educational priorities even towards the cultivation of virtue? Are our educational priorities towards autonomy and self-determination? Or are they more oriented towards 
economic viability, and we may want to take issue with the priorities. So there's a couple of different ways to approach this. One, before we get into the classroom, if we do not have equal access to the goods of education, then perhaps we are not meeting the ethical standards that we should be. And then the question about, well, what are the goals of education? Do we need to have some new discussions about the priorities in the classroom? What are our general societal priorities at the moment? And are these making it harder or easier for us to meet our ethical obligations to provide children with the goods that education is supposed to provide? Stepping back even a little bit farther, and this will come to light as we discuss things more today, you know, I'm wondering, when I look around, I wonder, do children have a right to be treated ethically? Or is that treatment afforded their parents? And then the children will benefit. And I ask that because we've seen some sort of current happenings here and around the country. And Paul, I know you want to talk about this a little bit. It's something that's come up that leads me to question whether we treat children equally as other human beings, as other people in society. Yeah, I think, Kathleen, you're referring to the controversy that is going on in Albuquerque as we record this, and it's unresolved at this point, where there's an effort to ensure that just all the records that children have in the educational system in the public schools are made available to parents or not, that parents are in some cases asking to have access to those records, whether or not their children want them to. And the children, in some cases, and parents as well, other parents, are saying, no, that there's a, an opportunity for children to have the opportunity to have confidential conversations with the professionals in the schools, such as counselors, that can, can keep that information even from their parents. That's a tough discussion. Parents do have rights regarding their children's upbringing, but I think there's still a concern that there are some very touchy issues going on, that not all parents are going to be open to things such as children's desire to be transsexual or problems that children have had that they may feel they have to have a confidant to speak to that they can trust and who will not reveal what they are telling them to anyone, including their parents who may not be understanding or receptive. Many parents will accept, for example, a child's determination that they have recognized themselves to be transsexual or gay. They Parents may not, however, be willing to accept that and unfairly treat the child or even as much as eject them from the house. So that's something that I think is a deep concern and an ethical issue because it really does bring us down to that question you raised. Do the parents have rights that the children don't have in the children's own lives and determinations and confidences? Well, Paul, and you, you and I are both lawyers. And so in law, we talk about this having a chilling effect on keeping children from being able to confide things that they might not wish their parents to know about. And Will, I guess the question is, is it ethical to pierce that privacy? Do children have those kinds of ethical rights that we give to others? I think it's a brilliant question. And it's a kind of deceptively complex question as well, because the question, do children have a right to be treated ethically? One of the advantages and positive legacies of living in the era of the liberal enlightenment is that for the most part, I would say our moral intuitions are immediately, yes, of course, children have a right to be treated ethically. But it's worth remembering that's a relatively new phenomenon. 
It's a very new idea that children have equal rights. But I would say, yes, generally speaking, the intuition is that they do. This other question you're asking, which I think is so fascinating and so important, is that if we take education, as I laid out before, if as educators, we are obligated to provide the conditions for children to develop the capacity to determine their own lives, we are inviting tension between children and their families. Because that invitation to self-determine and to think critically and autonomously invites friction with whatever traditions, background, beliefs that children are brought up with. There's also just the idea of, are children born with this capacity? Probably not. So there's a sense in which there's almost a contradiction at the heart of education, that as educators, we're obliged to sort of, in a way, impose freedom, which sounds like a paradox. We're supposed to impose this freedom on children, which does come with negative consequences for the coherence of their family situation. And do parents have rights concerning their right to preserve certain traditional beliefs, to resist openness? And criticism on those beliefs, I think we'd have to say to an extent, yes. And it's a complex and difficult balancing act whereby we have to balance the obligation to help children realize their potential as individuals and at the same time to reflect the traditional values of a community that can often be challenged by those breaks. I think the only correct approach to this is some kind of continued deliberative democracy that involves parents in the process of policymaking. And all of us have to accept that there isn't going to be a necessarily perfect balance. And I think being clear on what our obligations are to children could help us at least enter into these debates with a clear perspective and say, we accept that what we are offering children involves cultivating questioning, which could lead to a kind of discombobulation of their traditional belief systems. And we have to be trusting and caring and take that very responsibly and understand the consequences of encouraging children to potentially develop new progressive ways of thinking that might be in contrast to their communities. Awareness and care, as well as a clear commitment to some central principle about what we're trying to do as educators, might help us overcome some of these issues, perhaps. Welcome back to Ethics Now, conversations about ethics. I'm Kathleen Sabo. So in preparation for this episode, I was researching and looking for materials, writings about ethics and children and treating children ethically. And mostly what I came upon was treating parents ethically so they can parent their children. And so then the question arose for me, what do we owe ethically, generally, to children in society? And Will, I'm wondering if any of the ethical theories can help us out in this regard, can speak to what we owe children ethically. There are, roughly speaking, three, maybe four historical approaches to education in what we consider to be the Western tradition. And the first is the idea of virtue. Now, this idea, simply put, is that there are certain practices that every person, if they commit time to and effort to, that will contribute to their greater flourishing in the overall leading of a happy life. And so the purpose of education, our moral obligation to children, was to set them on a path 
to the cultivation of virtue. Now, obviously, this depends on the tradition precisely what that means, but all the way from the Buddhist tradition through to the Christian tradition, there's some notion that there are qualities, dispositions, behavioral tendencies, which increase the likelihood of us leading a good, full, and happy life. And for those perspectives, our ethical obligation comes from the fact that actually practicing our ethical commitment to others is part of the virtuous life. So we have an obligation for the sake of achieving good lives for ourselves to try and achieve good lives for others. So our obligation to children is to enable them, as I said, to cultivate their own virtue. Now, in a religious school, this would be walking a certain path towards a certain religious goal. In the Greek tradition, it would be general dispositions such as friendliness, generosity, and kindness. And our job essentially was to indoctrinate children into the cultivation of these virtues on the assumption that children were not deemed capable or worthy of critiquing or distancing from those traditions. And so the imposition of those virtues was morally permissible. Then you move up to what we call the liberal enlightenment tradition and the emergence of democracies and the idea of human rights. And the idea here that there are two things, that our obligations to children in terms of education are to provide them with the resources to determine their own lives. That was the first. The second is that we also equip them with the resources to be contributing members of a democratic liberal society. So the idea that we have an obligation to teach children citizenship, so citizenship and self-determination. Our ethical obligations come from the simple realization that equality is the fundamental principle of human rights. And so every child is equally worthy and equally deserving of the central purpose of education. Then we have in our contemporary era, perhaps something of a break with these traditions. Obviously, there's overlap and elements remain. But since liberal enlightenment societies have developed into more neoliberal, primarily capitalistic democracies, there is much more of an emphasis on equipping children for economic self-sufficiency. Now, we can take a step back, obviously, and compare and contrast these perspectives. But I think the idea is that ultimately, our ethical obligation is to equip children with the tools to succeed in some degree. And perhaps our aspirations have dropped a little bit from leading a full, good and happy life. And they're more in the era of self-sufficiency in an economic sense. In terms of ethical theories, how do we bring in children as people we generally owe ethical obligations to? What theory of ethics or kind of ethics would bring us to that point? I think that's a really helpful question because a lot of what we've looked at rests on this idea that adulthood is the focus of moral concern and enabling children to achieve adulthood is our ethical obligation. And it sort of downplays certain elements of dependency and vulnerability that are natural parts of caregiving and that our ethical obligations are to help those who are dependent and vulnerable. And for an emphasis on that kind of ethics, there's a more recent tradition which actually grew out of feminist ethics. This is a 20th century tradition called care ethics. And care ethics actually locates moral significance in relationships and dependencies rather than rights or virtues or capacities of the individuals. So care ethics wants to maintain relationships by contextualizing and promoting the well-being of caregivers and care receivers in a network of social relations. The idea is that this comes from our experience of childhood ourselves. 
So for care ethics, childhood is really the epicenter of our ethical concern is that we were once vulnerable and our existence depended on the care of others. And so our obligations to children is to help them overcome vulnerabilities and dependency insofar as is possible, but ultimately to care for the vulnerable precisely because they are vulnerable. And this therefore affirms the importance of a caring motivation rather than reasoning from abstract principles. Relating that idea to education more generally, I think this would fit probably most with those three positions that I outlined there of virtue, and that our obligation is to express, manifest, and cultivate care. So caring for children precisely as they are, responsive to their unique vulnerabilities, to their unique capacities, and to cultivate a society that prioritizes care for one another care for the community and care for the wider environment, that this should be the dominant goal of an ethical education and our culture more generally, as opposed to things like economic self-sufficiency or even autonomy, which ultimately says, let's give people what they need and then leave them alone. Care ethics says, no, we should be sustaining relationships. We should remain attentive, responsive, and take responsibility for vulnerability and for our interconnected human relationships, emphasizing that all of this comes from the experience of childhood and focuses on the vulnerabilities and dependencies that are definitive of childhood. Paul, as, as someone like myself who's not a philosopher, what are your thoughts about care ethics? Well, I agree with what he's saying, but I also want to build on that with some additional thoughts. And that is that, uh, in particular, I'm concerned as a, somebody who's been involved in government my whole life, really, and the public sector. I'm really concerned about the lack of critical thinking that emerges from so many people's education and what that leads to. And I think right now we're in a period where our democracy is really being challenged, where people have overlooked the concepts of the rule of law rather than the rule of men, as it used to be called. You know, I looked at the January 6th, 2021 invasion that basically threatened the lives and more importantly, even than that, the democracy that we have. I think a lot of people just saw a bunch of rabble, but I, I don't think that's the whole story at all. I think that many people there were actually people who grew up in a world where they found that uh, it's okay to believe somebody that you believe in, no matter what they say. You could believe anything that uh, people threw at you, and they weren't using critical thinking, and they weren't aware of or caring about the very important principles that underlie our American form of democracy, which is to uh, defer to the laws, uh, to defer to the Constitution. They just said, this isn't what we want. That's not the result we want. It's not giving us the result we want. So we're just going to demand something else and threaten people's lives if they don't come up with it. Well, that's not America. And for so many thousands of people to not only actually engage in that kind of event, but then beyond that, to actually pressure their politicians that respond to them to downplay the event is, I think, a very poor commentary about our educational system in that it allowed that to happen. So building on the care ethic, which is the exact opposite of what we saw there, is, I think, recognizing that it's not just a responsibility we have to the children, which I do agree we have, but to our society, our form of democracy as a whole that is being let down if people can come out of school thinking that what was done was acceptable or not that significant. Will, any comment? 
I think Paul's comments there are extremely important. I'd like to emphasize the fact that the absence of critical thinking is a key factor, I think, in the attempts to overthrow democracy in America. And I think it's important to place the majority of the ethical blame, should we place any, on those manipulating the trust of their followers. I think it's fair to say, as Paul did, that this wasn't a group of people who were necessarily invested in vandalism and destruction. They genuinely believed, a lot of them did, that their democracy was under threat, and they believed that because of deception, manipulation, but, as Paul says, a lack of critical thinking. And I think what Paul says about that not being American is really interesting too. I mentioned the rights-based approach to education, the idea that what we owe our children is providing them the capacity for self-determination and autonomy. And this requires critical thinking. One cannot be free if one isn't capable of making informed choices about one's options. It also requires political, ideological, and religious diversity. We have to be experienced to a broad range of cultures. We have to be encouraged to question the information that we receive. And these are essential, not just to avoid the kind of disastrous episodes of uncontrolled and ill-informed violence that we're seeing all over America and many layers of culture, but to achieve the very ideals that America is based on. To be free, one has to think critically. So I think part of our ethical obligation as educators, if we're interested in providing children with the ability to determine their own lives and to decide what they want to live for, then absolutely the teaching of critical thinking and the exposure to diversity is required. And it wasn't just the January 6th incursion onto the Congress. You know, I remember seeing a, a video of a a woman hospitalized with COVID, lying in her hospital bed and extremely ill and saying, well, everybody was telling me that the vaccines didn't work. So I didn't bother to get one because that's what everybody was saying. Well, I was wrong. Here I am lying in this hospital bed, deeply ill with COVID. I think people have got to learn not to look at the internet as a source of all their information. And that means critical thinking that is not adequately being injected into people's consciousness. Well, is that an ethical failing then when we, and by we, I mean society, don't prepare children for all the critical thinking that may be required and the research and the understandings and the media literacy? We could go on and on about all these skills that are needed in our society right now. Is that an ethical failing on society's part? I believe it is an ethical failing because we have an obligation to our children to the society that they are going to be taking over, to our society as it now exists. We have these obligations and we're failing to meet those if the children are not prepared in every respect to take that on. You're listening to Ethics Now, conversations about ethics. I'm your host, Kathleen Sabo. Whether we're talking about ethics generally or quality or, or care, it's hard to think that we're doing right by children, I, I believe, when we look at the disparities in education, when we look at public education versus private education, when we look at access to health care and the disparities there and opportunities for growth and advancement. Paul, let's dig in a little bit because we certainly had a great ideal as a nation to create public education. But 
how can we resolve the tension about whether we're doing right ethically by children with regard to education? Okay, well, the way I would approach that question is to look at the contrast between private education and public education in the world we live in. And I think what we find is that private education tends to be better resourced. Teachers may or may not get paid better, but they get a lot more support in providing education. I remember an incident where my son, who's a teacher and been a principal, was teaching in a public school in Santa Fe for quite some time, and then moved to Columbia, where he got a job in an American school there, a private school for wealthy, uh, as it turned out, mostly wealthy Colombian families, very well resourced. And he was stunned the first day when he made some comment about uh, the planning they're making for, for a presentation the kids were going to give. And all of a sudden, this whole tray of muffins showed up from the kitchen, totally shocked that that would be provided. It was unthinkable in the public school he'd been teaching in, which was a very good public school, actually. So little things like that really add up where the private schools are very attractive for those who can afford them or for those who can get scholarships to send their kids or for those who just make the sacrifice and really do it. So I think what we're seeing in in the U.S. in particular is a movement of many parents and families who value education and people who are themselves educated and support education very aggressively for their children, a lot of them are moving into private schools because they don't trust the public school system to offer enough. Paul, is that an ethical failing on the part of society to allow children to be educated differently, dependent upon their wealth? Well, I think the the ethical issue is whether society is providing sufficient resources to the public schools, in particular, emphasis and impetus for good education as the private schools are. And if they're not doing that, that is an ethical failing because of what we've been talking about, where there is so much need for students to be educated in all the ways we've discussed. Yeah, I'm curious whether resources are the answer to whether we teach someone critical thinking or not? Or will has there been some kind of movement to teach children a certain way or not? And is there any kind of ethical question about that? Oh, it's such a good question. So I think you're right to put a bit of pressure on Paul's point, which I agree with, that there's a natural fear and anxiety with parents concerning the public school system in America. And there is a completely understandable desire to move away from state education for that reason. But at the same time, I think your point about where exactly does that ethical failing lie? So I agree with Paul that the ethical failing lies from the top down, but there is a sense in which change has to come from the bottom up too. I have been speaking about how one of the original aims of the liberal enlightenment tradition in relation to education was cultivating citizenship. And there's a sense in which our hyper-individualized, money-oriented society has eroded this ideal of citizenship to the extent that we think it's perfectly reasonable to make a decision for the individual benefit of our children, even if that upholds and sustains a system which is unfair and unequal. And this is a deep ethical question. I wouldn't tell anyone how to answer that question, but the question should I think just about the success of my child or should I think about the success of our community is a deep concern. And I think as a culture, we are leaning a little bit too far towards the preservation of the nuclear family 
to the detriment of the wider community? And I think that is a deep and important ethical question. However, I think we can see that there are certain traditions where individuals find themselves so alienated by state structures and state systems. For example, the progressive black radicalism movement in education, you were talking about, are there responses to the problems in inequities in education. And this connects to this issue in a difficult ethical way. So Quentin Wheeler-Bell is a professor of the philosophy of education at Indiana University, I believe, and he's written a lot about this. So there have been charter schools that have emerged alongside the civil rights movement, specifically aimed at teaching African-American, Black American youths to navigate, to deal with, to survive within, and ultimately to try and transform and overcome oppressive societal conditions. So here you have a very specific agenda-driven form of education, namely to define the problems of oppression within American society in accessible, simple ways. One example Wheeler Bell gives himself is that by a popular metric, the average black family in America is worth $1,800, while the average white family is worth $80,000. And then after this very simple expression of a problem, The school has a curriculum which investigates the critical tradition, trying to answer, why is this the case? And the idea is that neoliberal capitalism is an obstacle for overcoming oppression because of things like the fact that contracts, not democracy, determine the conditions of education. Gentrification means that people don't have a say in the development of their own communities, that class inequalities, access to assets and means of production structure our labor, our habits and our life. And that if we are to overcome oppression, education is the most fundamental starting point, that we have to educate people into this problem and then develop democratically realized processes of responding to these issues, understanding the problems and trying to bring power back to the communities. But as you say, you mentioned here, well, this lends back to this idea that if we're actually having education for specific people, whether it's because of their ethnicity or it's because of their wealth or it's because of their socioeconomic background, there's a deep ethical question here. There have been long fights in this country to overcome segregation in education. Now, do we have a sort of return to segregation in education? Now, I certainly wouldn't make any judgment about African-American movements seeking to use charter schools to overcome oppression. But there are deep questions here about, do we think there should be universal standards of education? Or should we be developing local and specific forms of education? And should it be like a sort of marketplace where you get to pick and choose the kind of education you want your children to have? Or should we be making more of a collectivized commitment to standardizing and equalizing access to education? And I know our listeners may well be hoping for me to give an answer to this question, but the best I can do at this point is hope to have articulated the complexity of it. There doesn't seem to me to be an obvious ethical answer. I think one thing we can conclude is that the creation of a cohering community requires efforts from all of us as citizens to make ethical decisions, as well as policymakers allocating resources sufficiently for state schools to be able to even begin providing the kind of education that we generally tend to believe all children deserve. I think Will has given us a lot of good information there. And we're not saying that all education has to move towards a certain direction or provide a certain perspective. On the contrary, I think that public schools in particular need to provide a variety of perspectives and that students really benefit from that, that just learning that there are different perspectives out there 
is something that I think is a valuable lesson for students and to hear it presented in responsible, properly supported ways, and then make their own choices about what fits with their own values. So I don't think the idea that we're talking about here is to try to drive students into a particular political philosophy or economic philosophy, but rather to hear them all presented in meaningful, responsible, truthful ways so that people can make their own choices. And that gets back to critical thinking. The question I was getting at was whether if we have an ethical duty and currently we're failing ethically, can we overcome this disparity in resources by how we teach? by the theories we use to teach children, by providing more critical thinking opportunities instead of using indoctrination? Can we help to sort of level the playing field by addressing how we teach children? Will, any thoughts about that? I think it's an incredibly important question. And this question as to whether education is indoctrination or education, what is the difference between those two things? And I think that there's a really fascinating and attractive popular movement. A.J. Murray Brown has developed a model for trying to minimize the harmful effects of indoctrination and establishing trust in ways which can help us meet the problems of inequities and to develop dialogue and the kind of education that is inclusive and to develop a model that can represent and serve as wide a range of people as possible. And I think the first thing to mention is that all the ethical theories, as I've said, that are pursuing the improvement to overcome the ethical problems around education regard the marketization and influence of neoliberal capitalist influences in education as the most important obstacle to overcome. But putting that aside for a second, to get back to this question of trust and indoctrination, A.J. Murray Brown asks this very important question, I think, that educators should ask, and that is, what are the conditions under which something strikes a person as a factual piece of information? And our immediate intuitions are probably just, well, if it's true or not. Right. And that's a little bit naive. If we are a little bit more honest with ourselves, the reason that a piece of information arrives to us, strikes us as a fact, is dependent on what A.J. Murray Brown calls trust networks. These are the networks, communities that we live in, that we place our trust in. Our families, our churches, our communities, the people we encounter, the media we consume. And for all of this, these networks influence what strikes us immediately as a piece of truthful information. And having sensitivity to this is very crucial because when people come into a diverse educational environment, they're going to have very different trust networks. So what do we do with that? Well, the first thing we need to do is to realize that if we want to enable people to determine themselves and be autonomous, we need to teach critical thinking. We need to encourage the questioning of those trust networks. However, we need to be incredibly careful to take into consideration the psychological impact that encouraging critical thinking can have, especially in a culture that has not prioritized it for far too long. We risk alienating students from their families and their communities. A.J. Murray Brown uses this wonderful phrase. He says, education is intimate and awesome. It's awesome in the sense that it can transform our entire perspective on the world and turn a world of understandable and predictable patterns into a much more exciting, adventurous place where young people can think way beyond they've possibly imagined concerning their lives. But at the same time, it's also incredibly intimate and it requires students to be very vulnerable 
and it puts them in a situation where their beliefs are going to be challenged. So the promise of mental liberation, of enchanting students, and the adventure into self-determination does come at a cost. And how we respond to this, I think, a model for teaching ethically, is to attempt pluralism and openness, to adopt minimally agenda-driven ideological stances. Ultimately, we need to become trustworthy and trusting. To be trustworthy is to teach in such a way that students know that even when we're encouraging them to critique their own traditions, they can trust us to be caring about them as individuals, to be sensitive to the impacts, to be sensitive to the fact that we all come from these diverse trust networks, and there to become a trusting resource for a diverse range of perspectives. How do we do that? Well, we have to agree, all of us as educators, that we have something to learn from our students, that we have to be vulnerable and open to challenging our own beliefs and our own perceptions too. This, I think, is a good model for how do we teach critical thinking in a way that's going to be effective, because the greatest opposition to critical thinking is this idea that you are threatening my deepest held beliefs, and that it's my obligation to protect those beliefs in the face of that kind of education. So being transparent about the limits of knowledge, seeking to create intersections between diverse trust networks, and aiming our education towards providing students for the ability to discover the freedom of self-determination without imposing some standard of what that should look like, without imposing standards of profitability, of marketability, without imposing standards of this is what a good citizen absolutely is, and you must accept these traditions and reject these traditions, etc., etc. I think A.J. Murray Brown has given us a very helpful model there that I certainly will try to follow. Would you go so far as to say that indoctrination is unethical? It's such a deep question. I'm not sure that one can even have a conversation with another human without risking indoctrination in some form. Even what I just said about developing a trustworthy educational environment, to an extent, I'm imposing my will and my desire on what I think education should be. So I think it's unfair to call indoctrination unethical. I would say insensitivity to the dangers and risks of indoctrination would be unethical. I think perhaps it's too much to ask us to never impose views or never make a stand, but I think we need to be careful and compassionate and transparent when we're doing so. Paul, would you like to add something? Yes, I'd like to raise a caveat here, and that is, I think a lot of the problem we're having now is that people have started to attribute motives to people who they disagree with in such ways that they just darken any discussion and view the opposing point of view as just evil. And picking up really where Will was talking here, that if people can't see the motives of other people in holding the positions and expressing the positions that they have and only see them as uh, coming from some dark place that is meant to destroy, I think that's uh, that really closes down discussion. And I think that's a skill that can be learned and taught in schools and should be. And that we may have an ethical obligation to teach. Absolutely. You're listening to Ethics Now. I'm your host, Kathleen Sabo. So, Will, I'm going to ask you this question first. Are there things in our history or in our culture that could be preventing us, and by us I mean society, from acting as ethically as possible with regard to all of the children in society regarding education, say? 
There's many things. One thing we can focus on, I think, is a method of education or an approach to education, which has led to many goods, actually, in our society, but I think has certain dangers and is one of the things that might be a bit of an obstacle for us, maybe not overcoming ethical failure, but for, let's say, optimizing the achievement of our ethical aspirations regarding educating children to be self-determining, autonomous individuals. And there's a model of education that has been spoken to since Pythagoras, actually, all the way up to Paolo Freire, this idea of an empty head model of education. So the empty head model is this idea that there's X amount of information which every child needs to know, and the role of an educator is essentially you lift open the child's empty head and walk around with a jug full of relevant information and just pour it into every child's head. Then you give them a test, and then you say, yep, they've met these certain informational standards. That's the goal of education. Now, of course, there are real goods that have come from this. The idea of a state education, the idea of a shared curriculum builds community. It enables us to have an equal playing field if we do have these this basic set of information and skills. So there are clearly some goods, the social peaceful role played by educating children in the same curriculum. But there is a risk that we turn education into this primarily instrumental phenomena, meaning that the purpose of education is to pass tests. The purpose of education is to tick quantifiable, standardizable boxes. And the problem is that this doesn't encourage thought. It doesn't encourage critical thinking. It is resistant to creativity, to questioning, and thereby can reinforce a status quo. If we want children to develop as ethical and inquisitive people, and if we want to meet our obligations to enable children to become masters of their own destiny, then we have to add critical and creative thinking. So teaching ethical conduct, for example, based on threats of punishment is unsuccessful. To get children to actually think about the effects they have on others, to think about the value and meaning of their life and the life of others, cannot be achieved through multiple choice tests and standardized results. Just to give you a couple of famous criticisms of this position, Pythagoras famously encouraged his students to criticize his own thought, and yet he also developed some very strict and quite bizarre codes of conduct. And there are two schools of thought that actually came out of Pythagoras himself, one that followed his rules absolutely, and another school that preferred to engage in continued criticism. And there's a famous anecdote, which is surely false, but teaches this point, and this comes from ancient Greek thought, and it was that Pythagoras was being chased by some people he owed money to. And he came to a field of beans. And one of these bizarre rules that Pythagoras laid down is that it was prohibited to eat beans. And the story goes, because he couldn't break his own rule, he didn't go into the field and he was caught and captured by his pursuers. The story is a famous one to try and teach this idea that if we merely internalize and regurgitate information and take it as absolutely true without any form of questioning, we are committing ourselves to planned obsolescence. The school that followed Pythagoras's rules no longer exists. They died out fairly quickly, yet those who engaged in his critical patterns of thought have come on to be the pioneers of physics and mathematics. So this is part of this idea. Plato had a wonderful idea for education that resisted this empty head model. In fact, he said up to the age of 10, you do not teach anything at all in terms of information. You do not teach any kind of curriculum. What you do is you have 
compassionate educators observing children playing. You give them various equipment, various resources, and let them just discover it their own way. And then the skillful educator recognizes certain talents and propensities in individuals. And then education is responsive to the capacities for independent and creative thought that the children exhibit themselves. This is also an important idea in relation to the goals of education as liberation. So running right up to the time of Paolo Freire, he had a similar critique in his famous book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, a similar critique of this empty head model. He called it the banking model, where the teacher merely recites facts for memorization, facts that have no connection to the immediate concerns of life, and these produce passing, unquestioning students. Now, for Paolo Freire, this method of education is actually oppressive because it dehumanizes the student, taking them to be a blank slate to be molded by the teacher. And it produces a society that has planned obsolescence, that stagnates, that doesn't have the conditions for continued renewal and rebirth and reassessment through critical thinking, through care-oriented communal thinking, not just about individual freedom, but about education involving questions about how to determine the future of our shared society. And so this idea, which Paolo Freire called the problem-posing model and dialogue, is the idea that education should move away from standardization and information regurgitating to a more thematic investigation where educators and students work together as equals to find solutions to the problem of history and the present based on the goals of unity, compassion, organization, and cultural synthesis. The idea that this revitalization of culture requires an openness to diverse opinions and a compassionate dialogue between those diverse groups invested in collectively, democratically arriving at solutions and optimistic visions of how to adapt and develop our culture. That's a long-winded way of answering your question very specifically, that the model of education away from merely standardizing information based on test passing and the marketization of schools and students in virtue of being able to meet these quantifiable goals to a more open-ended, communitarian, compassionate commitment to critical thinking, discussion, diversity, and dialogue I think is one of the ways that we can overcome the historical problems of oppression and exclusivity, which of course are just some amongst many cultural problems we have, and perhaps Paul can speak to some others. I believe that there's a, a modern version of the Platonic model that Will described. It's at the Italian village of Reggio Emilia, which I've been to, and uh, they have the children explore multiple aspects of a single concept like shadows and have the kids play with it and work with it. It's for the youngest grades, but it seems like it's a very good adaptation for the modern world of, of Plato's approach. Paul, I want to open up this question to you a bit more broadly. The question to Will was, are there things in our history or culture that could be preventing us from acting as ethically as possible with regard to all children in society regarding education. But I want to open this up more broadly to you since our episode topic is a bit more broad. And so can you address that question with regard to education, healthcare, opportunities for growth and advancement? And and let's have you lead right into our next question, which is what do we need to do to address these issues in order to treat children more ethically? I think that what 
the question you've asked really comes down to is how do we ensure as much as possible the equality of opportunity for the children who are growing up, regardless of where they live, how much money their families make, what the background of their family is? Because right now there's an incredible disparity of opportunity, ranging from the, the fact that poorer families have the less ability to give support to their children. I think that policymakers need to be thinking in terms of not just how much does it cost, how much is that going to impact taxes, but rather look at the question in the long view. In the long view being, if children don't have an equality of opportunity, what are the ethical problems with that? And the ethical problems are that we are denying children for no fault of their own and through nothing that they can control, we're denying them the ability to both be more successful, but also to contribute, to contribute to society through becoming whatever they're capable of becoming and advancing everything from technologies to, to political achievement to educational programs and so on. I mean, all these things are possible if we simply insist on giving those children equal opportunities so that they aren't grappling with poorer schools. They aren't grappling with schools that aren't expecting them to achieve, where children are not getting the health care that they need and so on. I think we're asking the wrong questions. We're asking how much it costs and we can't do that. Not if we're serious about preserving the next generation's ability to be good citizens and to be successful. So, Will, we had Paul address this a bit, and now we'll ask you, what do we need to do to treat all children more ethically? I know it's a huge question, but if there are a couple of things you wanted to focus on, that'd be great. To treat all children more ethically, we need to appreciate the fact that what the ethical treatment of individuals is is not a universally set perspective. So we need to have a collective commitment to the care for children, but we also need to have a pluralistic, democratic approach to arriving at what is the best way to do that. This has to be an ongoing, dynamic decision. I think the point of realization that most ethical theories share is that we need to transform our educational institutions from service-providing, financially motivated and governed institutions aimed at developing the conditions of economic self-sufficiency into institutions genuinely invested in the democratic pursuit of a good life and providing children with the capacity to develop and pursue their own conception of what that good life is. And Paul, hearing Will's answer, anything you want to add further? Yes, I, I've been focusing on resources being made available, not because that's the only issue, but because that is the way we express our support. But he's right. I think it's important that the way we provide that education, the way we provide the healthcare are all factors as well. And particularly, as I think we've talked about, must support critical thinking, must support pluralism and expose people to different ideas so they can make knowledgeable choices, not, not based on emotion, not based on just who they hang around with, but rather based on uh, reality and facts and ideas. Yeah. Well, and the hope is that this thoughtful conversation with Dr. Will Barnes and attorney Paul Biederman will spark some thought, some consideration on the part of educators, parents, and all of us in society. Will and Paul, thank you so much for today's discussion. Ethics Now is made possible by a grant from the New Mexico Humanities Council and the generous support of KUNM Public Radio, 
89.9 FM in Albuquerque, New Mexico, the nonpartisan nonprofit New Mexico Ethics Watch, and by Davis Law New Mexico, an Albuquerque, New Mexico law firm protecting your right to equality and fairness for over 40 years. Your feedback to the program is welcome and can be made at ethicsnow.org. That's ethicsnow.org. I'm Kathleen Sabo. Many thanks for listening. Be well.